0: Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Switchboard. It's an election special. We'll be talking to the candidates from the Labour Party, Lib Dems, Green Party and the Conservatives about key issues facing students, facing the British electorate and also challenges for Cambridge in general. Thank you to Selwyn Politics Society for doing this collaboration with Varsity and to Victor Jack for interviewing the candidates with me.
1: So before each of the discussions with each of the candidates... We polled students on our Facebook events and asked them what are the issues that matter most to them in this election. We tried our best then to filter these topics into our discussions with the candidates. Now the topics that came out consistently on top were climate change and the environment, the future of UK politics and the problems facing their respective parties. So we tried our best to include these in our discussions.
0: party he's currently the dean of emmanuel college so some students in cambridge will know who he is and we'll be talking to him about the spending by the green party climate change and also local issues central to cambridge
1: hi jeremy thanks very much for coming um it was great to have you at the talk earlier as well um so please could you tell students in a brief few minutes why they should vote for you in cambridge
2: they should vote green in the coming election because of two words climate emergency uh, the climate is the issue that uh, will shape our future on the planet, uh, and the Green Party uh, is, uh, takes that as its starting point uh, for all its policies. Um, and once you get that point in your head, then actually voting Green is, is the only thing to do. Uh, so, so we're, we're addressing the, uh, the climate emergency by means of a, of a massive Green New Deal... We want to spend 100 billion pounds a year for the next 10 years um, on uh, decarbonising our economy. Uh, we want to uh, uh, have um, we have a, a raft of measures to address inequality because inequality and carbon emissions are strongly linked. Um, and we need to 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 sort Brexit by means of having another referendum.
0: And for students who are thinking of voting in the Cambridge constituency, um, in this election, their vote could have quite an impact for themselves and for the country for decades, mm-hmm. especially due to Brexit and also the climate emergency that you mentioned. Um, specifically to students, what matters for them, do you think, most importantly, that would make them vote Green over other parties in the area?
2: Um, I think it's, it's very striking that uh, pe- students and people of student age... Get to the point about uh, the climate being such an important issue. Uh, so, um, uh, as students look to life beyond university, they um, uh, uh, what's what's in it for them? Voting green, they would actually be um, electing an MP who was working to to make that future possible and to safeguard it. Um, specifically, about as, as, as far as uh, student student finance, uh, the Greens would would abolish the system of uh, loans and fees that we have at the moment. Um, uh, Higher education, all education, is an investment for society, uh, so we think that should be free.
1: On the Cambridge Green Party website, it states that you hope to use independent Green thinking instead of the approaches used by other parties. What do you mean by this, and how do you think this approach is better than the one offered by, say, the Lib Dems or Labour?
2: The, uh, what, what distinguishes green thinking is starting from the climate emergency, uh, and that changes political discourse in a whole lot of ways. It's more inherently collaborative. It isn't limited by what is regarded as the acceptable bounds of political discourse at the moment. It allows you to think radically because radical change is a given. It's coming. Uh, And um, so uh, uh, independent green thinking is the sort of thinking that can embrace the many possibilities uh, that there are in terms of dealing with the huge challenge that we face.
1: So you've been a strong supporter of divestment within the university. Do you see the university making progress towards committing or committing to this goal in the near future? And how do you think that whoever is elected as MP for Cambridge can pressure the university um, to do this?
2: I think the divestment campaign has come a long way. Uh, Three or four years ago, when we first proposed the grace, the university's position was basically... Uh, we're not allowed to talk about this. Now we've got to the point where the vice chancellor was saying um, ten days ago uh, at a QSU organised um, conference on divestment that uh, if the evidence showed that that was the most effective way of bringing about a carbon neutral future, then that's what we do. Um, so we've we've come a long way, and I think um, uh, I think we we will reach a tipping point where the university will get the point that actually associating themselves with old climate-destroying technology, uh, such as oil companies, uh, is no longer acceptable. That shift has been really quite rapid, um, and so I can see that that tipping point might be closer than you might think. And and in terms of of, of what, what an MP could do... Um, uh, One bit of potentially being an MP that I would absolutely love is visiting the Vice-Chancellor and telling him that.
0: So at the end of the election cycle, Mm. someone will end up in number 10. Do you think that the British electorate has been provided a good choice of who will end up there um, in party leadership of all the parties? Or do you think that actually party leadership can and should be better?
2: Uh, Yes, I think our political culture has become degraded and based. Uh, the, two, the two people who, who might be in number 10 are Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn, um, uh, n- neither of whom uh, inspire confidence in me. I think, um, uh, yes, we, we, we do deserve better.
0: And what are your thoughts on the current Westminster system? Does it need a complete overhaul? Yes. Is this possible? And is it something that is possible in the near future? So the next five to ten years or so.
2: Right. Uh, y- yes, it does need a complete overhaul. Um, uh, we need a proportional system for vote for electing the House of Commons. We need a reformed House of Lords that's also entirely directly elected. uh um, And we need to do that to give people um, a a feeling that they own the political system, that they're involved in it. Currently, the the first-past-the-post system means that more than half the votes in the country are cast for parties who don't win. People don't feel represented, uh, and we need to change that. In terms of whether we can change that in the next few years, um, I think... Uh, if, if this current election produces a deadlocked parliament, then actually some sort of deal that involves a proportional system might be the quickest way of achieving that. Um, the, 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 the Greens are in favour of the, the single transferable vote system, but the, um, the system that's used for the European election, the so called de Haunt system, um, we have the infrastructure for that. Uh, that could be introduced literally overnight. Um, so, yes, we can, we can do that quickly.
1: So, given the race in Cambridge is proving increasingly tight between the Lib Dems and Labour, if you had to tell students to vote tactically, if their vote were to tip the balance, who would you tell them to vote for and why?
2: I'd still tell them to vote green. Because um, uh, a green vote is never wasted. You either get a green representative, as happened in the European elections, or you communicate a message to the other parties that they really do have to be serious about their green policies. So if the parties were to, if yeah, if, if either Lib Dems or Labour were to lose by less than uh, the green vote, they'd know that next time they had to be more serious about about their green policies. So um, I'd still t- tell people to vote green.
1: But if push came to shove and um you know, the Greens didn't stand any sort of chance at all um, between the Lib Dems and Labour, is there not not any sort of preference at all that you would tell students to vote for?
2: Uh, I'd still tell them to vote Green. (laughs) Uh, We we do get squeezed, and we did in the 2017 election, you know, the vote went down to less than 5%. Um, Then it went up to more than 20%, 23% in the European elections. So Mm. I think things are flexible, but actually... Any green vote is worthwhile.
0: The Green Party have committed, or say they would if they got into government, would want to spend a lot of money, especially mm-hmm. going into the climate emergency. Mm. What are examples of things you'd actually spend that money on um, to solve the, or to not solve the climate emergency, but to address the yes. climate emergency and try and reach the goal of more 2030
2: than 2050? Yeah. Um, well, we'd, we'd have to. Uh, uh, ...rapidly transform our power generation system... Uh, so mi- ...which principally means um, wind power and solar power... Uh, ...we'd also have to uh, um, transform our, the, the electrical network... ...to, to, um, uh, to cope with um, power that's generated um, sustainably... Uh, ...we'd have to address the issues of power storage... Also, if vehicles are electric, uh, then the um, uh, the national grid needs needs to be uh, needs a huge amount of change to, to to bear the loads that would be imposed on it. So, those are, those are that's one thing. The power system. Uh, we would um, rapidly build railways uh, uh, to replace uh, road travel. Uh, we'd work on uh, agriculture, which is currently very carbon-intensive. The most advanced sorts of organic agriculture can turn uh, the soil into a massive carbon sink. So we can, we can actually reduce the amount of carbon in the atmosphere by having soil that's full of organic matter. Uh, we would plant lots of trees, uh, millions of trees... Um, as David Attenborough said, the, the, the best technology we have for carbon sequestration is trees. Uh, uh,
1: yeah. So currently you are Dean of Emanuel College. Indeed. Uh, and some would say a good first place to start as Green candidate would be to ensure that your college does divest both from fossil fuel companies and um, from um, arms mm. production companies such as BAE Systems so what are you doing to ensure that at the moment?
2: Well the um, following some coverage, coverage in Varsity um, uh, there was quite a debate in manual about the the investments because uh, what that showed was that the, the amount invested um, in carbon stocks and in the arms trade was um, higher than would wish. Uh, my understanding is that actually those holdings have been disposed of. Uh, so that, that um, really quite quickly we, we, we moved to, to not holding those stocks. I think in the scheme of things, this is going back to the, the divestment question, it's, um, it's good that colleges divest uh, because that changes the atmosphere in the university. But actually the real prize is the headline, Cambridge University Divest, because so that's, that's the, the university putting its weight, its ac- academic prestige, behind moving to a zero-carbon future. Um, colleges um, are smaller, in most cases anyway, um, but, but it all contributes to the same process.
0: And last question, on if students are going to vote in Cambridge, mm. whether it's they've gone home and they're voting postally or whether they've stayed around and they are voting in the constituency, yeah. what are the local issues that you are campaigning on that they may not be aware of?
2: Uh, in partic- well, the, 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 um, the Cambridge Green Party currently has a campaign about the air quality in, in the centre of town. The, uh, the problem here is what are the legal limits for pollution. So the authorities will say that in most of Cambridge, not all, most of Cambridge, uh, the air quality is within legal limits, but actually uh, those legal limits are much higher than what is regarded as healthy by the World Health Organization. So what we are campaigning on is um, is trying to, to, to get the, the, the local authorities to commit to WHO-mandated targets for, for air quality. That obviously has a, has a knock-on effect for local transport because a lot of the pollution comes from the diesel buses that we currently have, so we need to move to electric buses. Uh, uh, the other issue is the Oxford-Cambridge Expressway, the motorway between here and Oxford, um, which we think is a grave error. Uh, we need to put the effort into building up the rail links between here and Oxford.
0: So if you could wrap up in 30 seconds or so, why students should vote Green, whether it's in Mm. Cambridge or in their home constituencies, what would you say?
2: This is the election that will determine how our government tackles the climate emergency, potentially for the next five years. It's really important that we get it right. uh, And that, I think, means voting Green.
0: Daniel Zeichner, who's the Labour Party MP for Cambridge since 2015, where he took the seat from Julian a Liberal Democrat MP. We'll be talking to him about Labour's Brexit policy, anti-Semitism within the Labour Party, and also the Labour Party's plan to deal with climate change. Thank you so much for being sitting here with us today. Um, if you don't mind starting, who you are, what you're standing for, and why students should vote for you in this election.
3: Well, I'm Daniel Zeichner. I've been the MP for the last four and a half years. It's the most wonderful job in the world, representing Cambridge, brilliant city. What I stand for, always stood for, social justice, tackling inequality. moment, obviously, climate change, right up there. It's urgent. We need to take it seriously now, unlike the current government. But also, of course, I'm a passionate Remainer. I'm um, absolutely determined that we stay in the European Union.
0: And for students more specifically, are there any policies that Labour are looking to introduce that actually appeals more to them and actually for the student base here in Cambridge that they could look out for in your manifesto? Well,
3: of course, the issue around student finance has been hugely controversial over many years and I'm absolutely delighted that Labour will abolish tuition fees, reintroduce maintenance grants in some cases. I think it's a fantastic offer. It's got to be done alongside making sure that proper funding is in place for universities, but that's a promise we've got alongside a transformational offer for the people who don't go to universities, particularly to uh, in- improve the, the dire financial situation of many of our colleges and sixth form colleges. It's a huge offer um, for young people, including, um, in many places, a free bus transport for the under-25s. I think it's a fantastic package.
0: And the Institute for Fiscal Studies has come out to say that Labour's spending plan doesn't seem to be credible, mainly for the fact that the spending you're looking to do just doesn't seem to be feasible over the timescale. What would you say in your response to this, or do you think it is something that can be done if the Labour government got in over the next five years?
3: Well, I think we all respect the IFS. I think they said much the same about the Conservatives' plans. They've been announcing things for months now with no proper costumes attached. That doesn't mean that we don't take that seriously, and I think if you look at John McDonald's what we call our grey book, which goes through in detail. The basic point is a simple one. This is the fifth wealthiest country in the world. We think there is much, much more that can be done. We think that the gap between rich and poor in this country is far too extreme. We think there are a number of major international organisations that are not paying their way, paying their taxes, and we think we can make that change, and we think actually our proposals are properly costed and deliberate.
0: So quite part of that, quite an important issue for students, is climate change and the environment. And Labour is pledging to be net zero on carbon emissions by 2030. Do you think this is a realistic and achievable goal, um, seeing as other parties are putting it back to 2045,
3: 2050? I think it's really, really ambitious. I don't think it's going to be easy. It's going to require actually change in the way we live our lives. I have been Shadow Transport Minister, I sit on the Transport select Committee, one of the biggest things we need to do is reduce our emissions from our transport systems. We cannot go on using our current car-based systems. One of the things I think is attractive about Labour's plans is that not only are we tackling climate change, we're tackling social injustice as well. For instance, the home insulations. That, by taking on the energy companies, bringing them back under our control effectively, we can transform the energy efficiency of our housing in this country and do that in a way that does not require people paying up front it's a fantastic scheme it will work for everybody that's an example of the government being actively involved rather than leaving it to the energy companies who basically have just been messing around for the last decade.
0: What are the big ways that Labour want to actually reduce carbon emissions?
3: It's a massive package I'd say the overriding point I would make is that um, Mariana Matsukatu has talked about this you've got to have clear goals that your economy is driven by. And at the moment, the goal of the British economy is returning profits for shareholders. We want to turn that round. We want to make the British economy absolutely driven by tackling climate change. That will create a million new green jobs. But in every sector of the economy, there are things, simple things we can do, like end the ridiculous conservative ban on on onshore wind. Mm. People want a much more sustainable energy system. So we'll be building some of those big factories we need to create the batteries that will be needed as we make our shift to electric vehicles. Every part of the economy will be geared to tackling climate change. That's a huge difference.
0: And what is your response to the Conservatives pledging £640 million towards the same goal, or to a different date, but um, towards climate change?
3: Well, I think the Conservative record speaks for itself. I mean, they really have done very little so far. In fact, they've been they've been arguing that we should cut fuel duties um, on on petrol and diesel. That's extraordinary at a time of climate change. So I don't think they're serious in remotely serious about these issues. In the time I've been in Parliament, we saw them completely dismantle the support um, for solar in this country, which has had a huge knock-on effect. We were doing really well, um, and an awful lot of us have now fallen back. So. Um, They are just taking the wrong decisions, and we would take a very different view.
1: So, just looking at your voting record, um, in December 2015, you actually voted against a motion that aimed to increase regulations on fracking, to extract shale gas in national parks, areas of outstanding natural beauty, world heritage sites and near points where water is abstracted for domestic and food production purposes. Why did you do this, and why should students take you seriously on the environment, given this information?
3: I'll need to check back on that because I suspect that was not the whole story. Quite often what happens in Parliament is there are votes tied to other bits and pieces and there will be a reason for that but I'm very happy to go go away and look at that. I've been opposed to fracking for a long time. I'm pleased the government's finally come to that conclusion belatedly Um, but uh, I will go away and check that.
1: So moving on to uh, Labour's Brexit policy. So we've all kind of heard this kind of idea of a new deal um, negotiated in three months and a referendum put it back to the people in six months by the Labour Party. So can you please explain to us how the Labour Party remaining neutral is going to work in a second referendum? Does it not undermine the entire negotiating process before it's even begun? You know, from the EU's perspective, why would they invest time and energy into the negotiation if the person who's negotiating it with them does not even want to fight for it in the referendum? Well, Labour's not going to be
3: remaining neutral, I can tell you. Um, the, the leadership sorry well on. the leader is going to act as an honest broker now, if you're going to be the Prime Minister actually frankly if you take one side in a referendum you're basically saying if you don't it's back me or sack me and I actually think it's actually quite sensible for the Prime Minister to stand aside as Harold Wilson did of course on the first referendum I don't think it's going to be difficult to, to negotiate a soft Brexit with the European Union because um, basically they want us to stay in um, and this keeps us far closer, which is a much simpler set of arrangements. I think that can be done relatively quickly. Keir Starmer, who would be leading for us on this, I think would, would, would tell you that those discussions um, have already been underway. So I think it can be done quickly. I think when you get to it, um, personally, my view would be the best deal you can possibly have is staying within the European Union. And I think that's the conclusion that most people would come to.
1: But how would you be able to extract concessions from the EU? If they know that then it's the constant.
3: leader... It's, it's, it's not a zero-sum game. It's not like ex- extracting concessions. That's, that's the UKIP, Brexit party view, that these people are our enemies, that you extract concessions from. They're not. They're our neighbours. They're our friends. We work with them. Um, so it's completely the wrong mindset, I'm afraid. Um, it's not about getting a good deal or a bad deal. It's, we're always going to have to have a relationship with our neighbours. It's only the Conservatives and the UKIP people who see it as a somehow we lose from this. We gain hugely. So basically we will put to the people a sensible choice between remain and a soft Brexit. At that point we will respect the outcome. And there is, a, there is an argument, Ken Clark has put this argument very powerfully, that some of the political institutions people have been nervous about. Well, that's a, that's a legitimate debate to have. But I'm absolutely convinced that in that referendum, partly because I suspect... That um, the levers will say it's two versions of Remain. I think we will win that referendum. So, the key choice at this election for people voting who want to stay in the European Union is do we get to the people's vote or not? And the only way we get to the people's vote is if Labour has enough seats in potentially hung parliament, If, if in the event that we don't win. In a hung parliament, it's going to be really important we have enough Labour MPs there to get us to that people's vote. There is a road to it now. And that involves winning in Cambridge in particular, because if
1: Labour doesn't win Cambridge, then we will not have those votes to remain, and I'm afraid we will leave the European Union. And so since you've um, voted 55 times since 2015 for further EU integration, you're one of only around 100 MPs to vote down May, invoking Article 50, um, and given Cambridge is also the highest Remain city um, in the UK, the question is, would you... Um, uh, campaign for uh,
3: Remain in a second referendum? obviously. I mean, it's a very very strange debate, this, because it's quite clear the overwhelming majority of the Labour Party um, are strongly in favour of Remain. But the question is, how do you do it? It's not a question of whether you are for Remain or not. It's how do you do it? How do you get there? And of course, half the country does not share that view. So quite frankly, unless Labour can win seats, in leave areas of the country, Remain is not going to happen, which is why the Labour Party's approach is a sophisticated, grown-up approach. Frankly, the Lib Dem approach to this is, I just want to register a protest, but it doesn't keep you in the EU. So that's a choice for people when they're thinking about it. Do you want to register a protest or do you want to stay in the EU? I want to stay in the EU, so I suggest people come with
0: me. And moving on to a slightly different topic, but something a little bit similar. Do you think in this election the British electorate are being given a good choice of party leadership, whether that's Johnson, Corbyn, or Swinson, or other party leaders as well? Extending that further, mm. um, I think Johnson
3: is an uh, absolute disgrace. I don't think he, sh- I don't think he should be prime minister at the moment. It was a coup essentially. He has broken the law. He's lied. He's clearly um, a coward. He's not, at the moment as we speak, made it clear whether he's prepared to be interviewed by Andrew Neil. He also um, is very weak when it comes to negotiations. When he was under pressure um, from the EU, both he and Theresa May had said there could never be a border down the Irish Sea. What did he do? He conceded. He expelled um, some of the moderate, highly regarded conservatives in his own party, so acting like a a dictator. And of course he also folded when he came under pressure from Nigel Farage. He's basically given in and he's basically offering essentially a, a no deal Brexit now. So Johnson, terrible. Now, I know people are critical of Jeremy Corbyn sometimes, but I've known him over many, many years. And what you can say about Jeremy is that there may be things upon which people disagree with him on, but I don't think anyone suggested that he's not honourable, decent and consistent. And I think, given the campaign of vilification that has been waged against him, he has shown remarkable resilience, exactly what you need in a leader. So, um, I can quite see why people would would not want Johnson. I have to say on Jo Swinson, I cannot forgive her for cutting and running um, a few weeks ago because we had Boris Johnson cornered in the Commons. We could have had, at that point, we had the numbers with the 21 Tory rebels to get to a referendum. Instead, she cut and run for an early election and put remain at risk. And if we end up leaving because of that, um, she should take responsibility for it.
0: And so you talks about a campaign of vilification. Often in the opinion polls that are coming out at the moment, even in the last week, Johnson seems to be ahead of Corbyn when it comes to approval ratings for leadership. Why do you think, even though you believe that Corbyn's an honourable man and Johnson's a disgrace, that this isn't actually coming across necessarily to the electorate quite as clearly?
3: Well, I mean, it's the same issue as with Trump in America, isn't it, essentially? Um, Clearly, there are are some people who find um, Johnson's cavalier disregard for the truth the fact that he treats people badly and sounds vaguely attractive—he's kind of, isn't um, Eaton Trump, isn't he?
1: So, there are many Jewish students at Cambridge. Many of our peers have prof- professed on social media, such as Facebook, that they can no longer vote for Labour. Um, and recent polls have shown that eighty percent of Jewish people in the UK would not vote for Labour. MPs like Luciana Berger defecting and the Chief Rabbi calling. Uh, party anti-Semitism a new poison sanction from the very top just this week. Does the Labour have a systemic problem with anti-Semitism and should Corbyn apologise? Corbyn has apologised and he's right to do so
3: because it is absolutely intolerable that the Labour Party, the party of which I'm extremely proud and have been a member for over 40 years, should have any, any members, not a single member, who expresses in any way any racist or anti-Semitic views. Now, we've consistently said, the Labour Party leadership has consistently said, that we need to do more. And of course we need to do more. But my concern is, and I absolutely understand why people are angry about this, I feel profoundly sad and sorry about it. But my absolute heartfelt belief is that the concerns that are being expressed about people feeling unsafe under a Labour government will not happen. I absolutely believe that. So I don't in any way disrespect that view, but I do think the rabbi, Chief Rabbi was wrong on that point. And all I can say is that I and many of my parliamentary colleagues are absolutely determined to make sure that no one feels unsafe in this country.
1: But do you think that procedures should be strengthened? I mean, only 97 of the about 625 complaints against Labour Party members in the first half of this year were actually referred to the National Constitutional Committee, which has the power to actually expel people. Um, and you, know, you have responses the Labour Party response to the BBC panorama um, on anti-Semitism in the Labour Party um, calling the staff that had spoken out about it and had a quote personal and political access to grind. Do you think more should be done and procedures should be strengthened in this regard?
3: The Labour Party is a voluntary organisation maybe four, 450,000 members um, I've worked in the National Trade Union we've had similar issues ourselves it's very very hard discipline um, your members when some of them um, will take you to law um, it's not an easy process to go through. Should we do more? Of course we should do more. What I'm wondering partly is why is this happening? I think um, sadly some people joined the Labour Party in recent years who I wish had never come anywhere near the Labour Party they do not share our values but that's a difficult thing to sort out um, I'm not directly involved in those party processes, but certainly I would like them to be much more effective. I don't want a single person in my party who expresses any or holds any racist or anti-Semitic views. And we will do all we can to make sure that there are not such people. What I would also say though, is it's not just the Labour Party that has this problem. Other political parties have problems, other voluntary organisations have problems. It's a problem across society, that's partly why I'm
1: in politics, to try and make sure that we, we deal with those foreign views. But could you personally pledge that if um, you came back into power, pledge to um, Cambridge Jewish students that you would try and influence and lobby the leadership of the party to take these things more seriously and strengthen the procedures?
3: Well, we already I and others have already been doing that. But the trouble is, it's one thing to keep saying it, you could actually achieve it. And uh, I think it's a hard thing to do, frankly, looking across all the range of organisations in society. We have a societal problem, and the Labour Party must do better, as all organisations must, to try and make sure that we influence those who associate themselves with us and, and join us, because we do not want such
0: people. Where do you think the future of British politics is heading, especially once Brexit is finish with if it ever is done um, is the kind of view that some people have that it's going to keep going for a long time, where do you think British politics will go after that? I think it very much
3: depends what happens um, in this election, I think if we get to the people's votes in a referendum actually that will, will probably resolve that for, for a period of time um, the underlying issues I think are much more difficult um, I think part of the reason um, half the country wants to leave the European Union is because they're pretty fed up with life in general, and I think it's pretty clear why that is, and that's why Labour's radical social and economic program is so important. I think you've got to deal with the underlying causes as well. Um, politics is vital; like, it will it will go on. I think where we're going to move on to are some of the bigger challenges about the kind of changes in the way we live our lives to tackle the climate crisis, um, but also to tackle um, what is going to be a very difficult difficulty of the challenges around automation and the changes that have on people's working lives. Because that's also part of this problem, the, the insecurity, the gig economy, the transfer of responsibility away from employers to individuals. All of that is part of the changes we're seeing, which could be for the good, but un- unfortunately left the market will almost certainly disadvantage, sways the population, and that's what a Labour government is for.
0: Finally, uh, what issues in Cambridge will you be campaigning on that are more local. Um, students may not be aware of them, it could be to do with the town, the surrounding area.
3: Well, when I was first selected in 2006, my first leaflet had transport and housing. <laughs> Those are the key issues in this city and particularly for a lot of young people, particularly when they, um, they graduate, housing costs in this city are just impossible for so many people. That's again is why I'm excited by Labour's proposals on a whole range of issues. Um, for council housing, which is absolutely essential in our city, but also for many more controls um, over private landlords because at the moment it's, it's much too tough. Rents are too high. We're seeing far too many cases where they're constantly being renegotiated on a six monthly basis. Labour will introduce much tougher controls to rebalance it in favour of tenants. So I think some of those things um, have always been my passions. On transport, um, I'm, a, I'm a passionate advocate of, of, of electric bicycles, for instance. That can be transformative as well. So there's, there's lots that can be done in Cambridge. Cambridge is a lovely city to live in um, for, for many people. But frankly, the numbers of people sleeping on our streets um, is, is awful, awful for the people involved. And I know upsets many other people as well. And a lot of that I'm afraid is down to the changes in the welfare system that we saw introduced by, by, the, by Liberal Democrats and Conservatives in coalition a decade ago when Labour left office in 2010 There was very little rough sleeping and we need to make the same kind of effort, particularly in terms of the early interventions, um, to make sure that people don't get to that state.
0: And Um, finally, what would you say are the main reasons that people should vote for you in this election?
3: I think people know me, I think people have seen where I stand on most things over the last four or five years I think broadly most people in, in Cambridge would say that I represent the vast majority of the city and their views. The reason overwhelmingly I would say support me is... If, we d- if Labour doesn't win Cambridge, it's very hard to see how we will stop Brexit happening. I'm passionate about that and remain it to my core. I also think that we're going to tackle climate change issues. Frankly, it's not going to happen with a Conservative government. A Labour government it's still going to be difficult, it's still going to be ambitious, but that's why I'm Labour, because I want a better world and I suspect most students do too.
0: Thank you so much for joining us today, Daniel. Thank you. The candidate that we'll be interviewing is Rod Cantrell, who's running for the Liberal Democrats within Cambridge. We'll be talking to him about the Lib Dems Stop Brexit Policy, the future of UK politics, and also about climate change and his links to it in the past. So, Rod, thank you for joining us today. If you want to start by just giving yourself a 30-second intro of who you are, your policies that you're standing on, and why students should vote for you in Cambridge.
4: So, I'm Rod Cantrell. I'm the Liberal Democrat parliamentary candidate here in Cambridge. I grew up in a mining community in Nottinghamshire. And the reason why people should be voting for me in this election is because this election is once in a lifetime and it's all about Brexit. It starts with Brexit and it ends with Brexit. And so the reason why students should be voting for me is that I represent the one party that is the strongest voice for Remain in this election. And the one party that will work tirelessly in the next Parliament to achieve a second referendum and enable the people to vote again and hopefully... Remain in the EU.
0: And why, more specifically, why should students vote for you? So what policies are the Lib Dems putting out in their manifesto that really affect students?
4: Well, clearly Remain is a material policy in relation to the students, not just in terms of the, the country, its outlook, being open and international. Many young people want to travel in Europe and so forth. And if we leave, that has a major problem in relation to students. But not only that, in relation to climate change, And our commitment to carbon zero over the course of the next 20 or so years. And not only that also, our commitment to fairness. That's not just fairness across the UK, but also fairness in Cambridge in particular. Where basically I have three policies. One is a Cambridge living wage, which this year will pay £10.25. A local living rent for key workers based on a third of their income rather than inflated market prices. And then finally, making sure the council offers a bed every night for rough sleepers here in the city.
0: And what you talked about Brexit. What do you think are some other key issues that are central to this election compared to others in the past?
4: Well, clearly climate change is a key issue. Um, Brexit is likely to be life-changing. Climate, the climate crisis could be life-threatening unless we act, unless we act now. And the reality is is that many young voices over the course of the last 6 to 12 months have brought that issue back onto the public agenda. But we have to remember, tackling the climate crisis is at various levels. It is at the individual level, what we do as individuals, it's at our community level, it's at a national level, but more importantly, it's at an international level. And only if we remain at the heart of Europe, we'll be able to work with our international partners to tackle that climate crisis.
0: So many people have criticised the Lib Dems for their policy of stop Brexit compared to perhaps just proposing a second referendum. Do you think this has been a key problem or do you think this is actually something that should have been done, actually people should get on board with revoking Article 50?
4: So 6 million people signed a petition in June of this year to revoke Article 50. Uh, 28,000 people here in Cambridge signed that petition. So there is a a strong feeling in terms of stopping Brexit. But I come from a mining community where 70% of the people voted to leave. So actually, I believe that putting it back to the people with remain on the ballot paper and a leave option is the only way in which we can actually sort this issue out over the course of the next six months. And more importantly, that if we do remain, we still need to make sure that those areas that voted to leave have the proper investment we're proposing a 50 billion rebalancing program of capital investment but also we need to have some mechanism by which we bring this bring people back together again because there is a social break between people who voted to leave and people who voted to remain
0: Do you think if we stopped Brexit and revoked Article 50 that we'd be able to heal those divisions immediately? I
4: I think so. I think there are some interesting ideas. I think, for example, the Greens have some interesting ideas in terms of citizens' assemblies. I think if you look to other countries in the world, such as South Africa and the Truth Commissions, the peace process in Northern Ireland, there's some really interesting examples in terms of how we bring... On a social basis those two very fractured kind of views back together and so that as a not only as communities and but as a country we come back together again
1: so the lib dem manifesto sets out that there will be a 50 billion remain bonus from remaining in the eu and not brexiting which can then be spent on social services and many other things but what happens if you don't get a majority which is all but certain at this point and you do not have access to this bonus how will you cost your manifesto? Well, the,
4: the, the key point is the other two manifestos don't stack up anyway, because both of those manifestos, in reality, assume there is a Brexit. The Conservatives are clearly Brexit-like now, mm-hmm. and actually Labour, in reality, are not a party of Remain. And, and so, therefore, actually, the reality is, in terms of this election, 80% of our target seats are focused on the Conservatives, Conservative-facing, so if we win those seats, we will stop a Conservative Brexit government, And then importantly, here in Cambridge, a Liberal Democrat MP would actually keep Labour honest in relation to Remain. And interestingly, the Labour Parliamentary Party in the previous Parliament, the strongest voice for Remain was Tom Watson. And he is no longer there in this next Parliament. So it's critical that actually those Unite to Remain uh, parties, ourselves, the Greens, Plaid, and to a certain extent SNP, act together on a basis to actually make sure that that the labor party are come to a position in terms of a proper position on remain in that next parliament
0: and um, what would you say i think people have levied the criticism that actually just saying stop brexit is anti-democratic what would you say in response to that
4: well firstly we live in a representative uh, democracy um, you may not agree with it first past the post i think is is not great uh, i'm much more for proportional representation but currently the system is first past the post, you put your manifesto forward to the public, the public vote on that, the party with the most seats or the majority is able to implement that manifesto as the government. That's the, that's the position. So in our manifesto, that's, that's what we've put forward. But the reality is it's highly likely that we will have a hung parliament after next Thursday. And therefore, our position in the Home Parliament is very clear that we want a second referendum with Remain and either Boris Johnson's deal or Theresa May's deal as Mm -hmm. the alternative.
0: And moving on to another big issue of climate change. What are Lib Dems pulling forward in their manifesto that you think you'll be able to reduce the problems of climate change, but also to get the target of reducing carbon emissions down by... So the
4: reality is... I'm an evidence-based politician, Mm. Um, our party is an evidence-based party, we have a 90-page document where we've gone through in detail in terms of how we get to carbon neutral, and that target is a 2045 target, but the reality is it's how quickly you move down that scale, and so we're wanting to achieve 70% of that by 2030, and that's Mm. principally in areas such as Sustainable energy generation, so 80% by 2030, insulating the three and a half million homes in the country, and, and also electrifying public transport such as trains, buses, and cars. And that helps materially in terms of reducing that footprint. And locally, you know, we as Liberal Democrats have a strong track record here in Cambridge, having run the council for over a decade, where we're the only authority within the area that actually has delivered two proper passive Code 5 sustainable housing developments of material size. One called Verido in the southern fringe, one called Marmalade Lane in the north. We're the only council also where we made a substantial commitment to in- introducing uh, sustainability into everything the climate did in the mid 2000s. Mm-hmm. So we have a track record of that locally and we would seek to build on that, not just in terms of new housing, public transport, but also, in everything the council did,
1: now, you're a director and owner of Millington Advisory Partners, a company which, under your management, worked and advised BP on the sale of its chemical business. to students who are vigorously campaigning currently against the university's links, specifically with BP, how can they trust you are serious about the climate crisis, and secondly. Could you pledge to us that as our MP and one who cares about climate change, you would make sure your business does not work with fossil fuel companies in the future?
4: So firstly, you know, this, this is a story that um, was put out actually in an opponent's piece of, mm. of, of literature. Um, the last time that we worked as part of an advisory team, which involved a project with BP on it, was 2002 to 2004 and interestingly it was actually in relation to a photovoltaic film business which goes into solar power panels. So firstly I've never worked in oil and gas um, or fossil fuels um, and so therefore what really disappoints me is the fact that that my labour opponent decided that he would use this against me and, and clearly this has had some national attention so Michael Crick who's the Channel 4 investigative reporter. Um, talked about it being desperation politics in relation to this. And look, you know, my dad taught me to... He was a coal miner. He taught me to be open and honest. I've not hidden the fact that that many years ago, this project, we did some work on this project, but it really saddens me because actually on the doorstep, what happens is the people of Cambridge don't like this politics. Mm. They view it as very Trump-style negative politics, and I'm committed to doing politics in a positive way. And ultimately you know, if I get elected on Thursday, which I hope I will be, I will be able to sleep soundly in bed because basically I know I've not done anything in a way that is negative or grubby in relation to this campaign. And unfortunately, that's the perception of that particular kind of approach that's taken.
0: And linking to working with fossil fuel companies, um, a lot of students in Cambridge are really keen on the process of divestment um, and actually having the university um, stop investing in fossil fuel companies and companies that contribute to problems with climate change and the environment. Is this something that you would support if you became the MP? Obviously,
4: yes. Obviously support that. And actually, I would make sure that actually I did not associate myself with fossil fuel companies. The Mm. current, or the the Labour MP, for example, took hospitality from Shell in 2017. Mm. But actually that didn't get mentioned by Varsity. But actually he did. He took hospitality from Shell. I would seek not to do that because I think you need to demonstrate to these companies, that they are on a journey and they need to accelerate that journey in terms of moving away from this type of activity.
0: And moving on again, you talked about a different style of politics. You also mentioned first past the post. Um, do you think the current Westminster system needs a complete overhaul? Um, obviously, Lib Dems have often been in support portion of proportional representation. Do you think it needs to go further than that, or is that something that needs to happen soon?
4: Simple answer to that is yes. If you look at the problems we have with Brexit, four million people in 2015 voted for UKIP. 2.6 million people, and UKIP got one MP, which was actually a Tory defector. Mm. 2.6 million people voted Liberal Democrat, and we had eight MPs. Roughly 300,000 voted for the DUP in fifteen, and they got 10 MPs. Mm. And that just shows you the issues of first past the post. I would have no problem if there were 10 to 20 UKIP MPs in Parliament, because actually they could be scrutinised, held to account publicly. And I think one of the issues that was the catalyst in relation to Brexit and the Brexit referendum was the fact that those 4 million people felt very frustrated after 2015 that their vote didn't mean anything in relation to the Parliament. So I'm a big supporter for a, a, a complete overhaul of our democratic system a written constitution, proportional representation, reform of the House of Lords, all these things need to happen. And Brexit has brought focus to the fact that our political system is broken in relation to the way in which we elect people to to Westminster Parliament.
0: How do you think that change can be brought about? And do you think it's something that's more likely to happen after the Brexit process and once it's finished with?
4: Well, it may be as part of a, a hung parliament in the next parliament that mm-hmm. that could be a mechanism that actually is brought through. Basically, um, I wouldn't propose a referendum to mm-hmm. deliver that change because I think I, I don't believe in referenda in relation to complex mm-hmm. issues. I think we have to have a second one in relation to Brexit because we are where we are. But in general, uh, I believe that actually it is a representative democracy, and actually what we should be doing is we should be we should be changing that democracy so it truly represents the way in which people are voting in a general election. And in other, in other elections across the UK, we have that. In Scotland, in certain regional elections, in Northern Ireland and in Wales, we have various forms of proportional representation. It's really only in Westminster that we are stuck with this first-past-the-post.
0: And moving on again to talking about leadership at the election. Do you think the British electorate, in terms of Corbyn, Swinson and Johnson, are being offered a good choice when it comes to the leader of parties?
4: Well, I'm a passionate supporter for Jo Swinson. Um, She is a woman of the 21st century. Um, She has a career. um, She has two young kids. She juggles life like many other young women. And I think she, her approach as leader of the Liberal Democrats demonstrates that you know, she has been open to politicians from other parties coming to us. That ability to actually work with other people rather than this dogmatic tribal approach is, is refreshing in relation to British politics. I think part of the problem has been that, again, this first-past-the-post system... And also the way in which national media focus on the two historical tribal parties means that actually we get squeezed out both in terms of airtime and in terms of the the, the ability for us to communicate our messages to the public. Um, but I think she's a breath of fresh air, and and actually, you know, I think it's 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 that type of politician that the public really do want, actually.
1: And finally. What issues local to Cambridge will you be campaigning on? So
4: in relation to Cambridge, I mean, we touched on climate change. I think climate, the climate crisis here is illustrated by transportation, congestion and air pollution, for example. Um, I have publicly been committed to improving the public transport system in Cambridge for over two years. I was a candidate in the devolved mayor election in 17. Mm-hmm. What I'd like to see is some tram or light rail system. Um, rather than digging tunnels, which is, in my view, a scheme which is basically not financially viable. Um, And that will be coupled with electric buses, sustainable transport, cycling and pedestrian, getting people out of their cars. And that's critical. And then the other feature in relation to that is housing. And as I mentioned, building high quality, sustainable, passive housing, not just in terms of market housing, but importantly, social housing, such as council houses. I've proposed that we build at least another 1,000, 1,500 council houses over the course of the next five years or so, and that's critical because we have a housing register, housing waiting list of over 2,400 families in this city. And that illustrates the point that Cambridge is, is not a fair city, and I think one of the critical things for the MP is to make sure that it is a fair city. And so just touching on those points I raised earlier, a Cambridge living wage, Critical, £10.25 this year linked to the London living wage, a local living rent so that people who are doing those key jobs, the glue of the city, nurses, care workers can afford to live in the city based on one third of their income rather than inflated market rents. Mm. And then finally, the issue of homelessness, as you've most probably seen on the streets. I mean, the city council claimed there's 27 people who are rough sleeping. Well, I'm a trustee at Winter Comfort for the Homeless, one of the homeless charities here in Cambridge. It's about 90, mm. and actually about 50 of those do not have anywhere to go. And, and you know, we live in a very wealthy city, a very prosperous city, and the least we could do is offer everyone a roof at night.
0: Mm. And finally, if you could wrap up in about 30 seconds, why, again, people should vote for you in this election, what would you say?
4: So in this election, it starts with Brexit, it ends with Brexit. So on the Thursday this week, the 12th of December, if you want to support a party that is will re, tirelessly campaign to remain in the EU, you need to vote Liberal Democrat.
0: Perfect. Thank you so much for joining us Thanks today. a lot. The final candidate we'll be interviewing for the podcast is Russell Perrin, a teacher and a councillor from Harlow who's standing for the Conservative Party in Cambridge. We'll be talking to him about Boris Johnson, the Conservative's Brexit policy and also the Conservatives' view on climate change. To start, uh, we'll just go with a general introduction of who you are, what you're standing for, um, obviously for the Conservative Party, but what does that mean for Cambridge and what does that mean for students studying in Cambridge as well who want to vote in this constituency? Sure.
5: Well, um, so I suppose I should tell you my name. It's uh, Russell Perrin. And um, I'll tell you a little bit about myself. I'm a teacher. So I teach science, a father of two children. And I've worked in education for most of my adult life. I come from a background where education was neither valued nor issued. It It, it was just something that happened to you. Um, uh, And I was the first person in my family to go to university. And it wasn't something that was talked about much, and, and I, having been a student myself, I know how difficult it is at university, um, particularly if you're somebody who comes from that sort of that, what, what was fashionably termed in politics, the squeeze middle, because my mum and dad were wealthy enough that I didn't qualify for any grant funding. but not wealthy enough to give me any money to support myself so I had to have several part-time jobs when I was at university whilst trying to study for uh, a degree and so I know how tough it is to be a student and you, you know there, there isn't a lot out there to support you you know and and we we need to try and do as much as we can to try and support students and I know I've been there and um, so I sympathize with a lot of what students go through
0: and moving on, this election has a lot of implications for a lot of people. Um, some students have just entered the electorate. Um, people, I mean, the deadline as recording now um, is tomorrow for registering to vote. Why should people vote in this election if they've never done before or if this is their first time and they're not 100% sure that they can pick a candidate they want to vote for or a party they want to vote for?
5: Well, I just think it's important to vote. I mean, if you're not prepared to vote, you, you, have, no, you have no right to say... That you either that you disagree with the problems you see around you, and you know, I think you know, particularly students. I mean, the students are a very well informed bunch, uh, by and large. But to to not to not vote, I think is uh, is not is not the best way to go. And so, you know, the old saying: if you don't use it, lose it. And so, yeah, I I I would strongly urge people to vote, and I would strongly strongly urge them further to vote conservative. Yeah rather than any other party, but uh, that remains the prerogative of the voter.
0: And bouncing straight off that, you talked about voting for Conservatives. So this election has a lot uh, kind of hanging on it. There's obviously Brexit going on, but for a lot of students, for a lot of young people, they see, say, maybe the climate emergency, problems with climate change, or actually even things to do with going to university, tuition fees, access at university being issues for them. Why should... Young people vote for the Conservative Party over the other parties that are on
5: offer yeah I mean you mentioned the environment there. I think the Conservative Party amongst all the major parties has done more than any other political party to tackle the problems associated with the climate okay and they 've looked beyond just the narrow aspect of looking at greenhouse gas emissions they 're looking much wider at the environment they 're looking at plastic pollutions they 're looking at biodiversity issues they 're looking at um, deforestation issues, a whole range of issues, and they're covered in our manifesto. And I strongly encourage anybody to read it. It's a brilliant manifesto. But you know, investing 640 million pounds in planting 30 million trees up and down the country for doing research into which are the correct species of trees that we should be planting. So the Conservative Party is really committed to the environment. And it's been one of the main parties that's seen uh, a net reduction in carbon emissions by 25% in 2010.
0: So you talk about how much the Conservatives would pledge to spend on, uh, was it 640 million? Indeed. Um, So the Greens are saying 100 billion, Labour have a Green New Deal and potentially more than that. Why do you think that 640 million is enough when at the last election a billion was given to the DUP? Um, Why is more not being put in? Um, does that signal it's not a priority or do you think that's fully costed and that will take us to pretty much stopping the crisis by 2050?
5: It, I, think, I think sometimes um, these numbers fly out of the air and sometimes it's very easy to say pick a, pick a couple of billion here, a couple of billion there and then you start attributing um, significance by the amount you spend on something. And actually it should be about how well that money is spent versus the actual level of spending in terms of significance, okay? Now, obviously, there's some, there's some, uh, there's some uh, mileage in, in doing that, but it doesn't get you to where you need to be. I mean, if, if we wanted to show we were committed, we could make the number up. 10 billion, 20 billion, 40 billion. You know, in the end, when does it become a realistic figure that is actually going to enable change? And this money has to be paid back, so it's a real costed figure that's actually got tangible outcomes
0: Waste of time. cool so moving on to a slightly different topic for those who feel that austerity has been something they have become worse off by over the last nine years or they are feeling they've they're kind of down on their luck and they want to see change so that might not apply to everyone but it does apply to maybe some people in society why would Why should they still vote for the Conservatives now when the Conservatives have been in government for the past nine years?
5: The Conservatives have done an awful lot to try and improve the lives of people with the limited scope that they had after the financial crisis. Let's not be any doubt, right? We make a mistake if we don't let people know the problems that occurred when there was a financial crisis. You can attribute the blame wherever you want for that. Okay, and I'm not going to make a party political point at this moment in time about the reasons for that financial crisis. But the fact the financial crisis happened is a fact. And as the former Treasury Minister turned around and said very famously in that open letter in in the Treasury, sorry, all the money's gone. Now, that's not something that can easily be rectified overnight. And, And we were looking at a situation across Europe where we had the highest unemployment uh, sorry where we had record youth unemployment across the European Union, where there was a breakdown of civil war, and, and we saw this chain going around Europe where countries seemed to be failing on their sovereign debt. And if we didn't act fast, we were next in the firing line. So you have to put everything in that context if you are to understand what's coming next. Now in that time, the Conservatives, under the Conservatives, has been the record number of employment, the highest, highest employment rate since the 70s. Highest employment rates since the 70s. Let's think about that, yeah? People in a job, paying job. We've got the lowest youth unemployment. We've got a record number of apprenticeships. So there has been a massive amount going on. And, you know, we have to remember that, you know, We've been working under this situation, but it's not uh, its not an ideological thing. It's not, oh, well, we deliberately want austerity. Nobody wants austerity. But the moment the money and the economy is now in a situation where we are balanced, where we can cope with that, we are putting record funding into the NHS, record funding into education. We're putting money into education. We're putting money into making streets safer. You know, And all the time we've got high, and we've made sure we've done it with high employment low youth unemployment, greater skills. You know, these are the things that Conservatives have done and will continue to do if they're elected in the majority government.
1: So can I just pick you up on that? So you've said that um, the Conservatives almost did what they could given the narrow scope or limited scope and the funds they had when they came into power in 2010.
5: May I briefly interrupt you? Yeah. They didn't just do what they could. They went beyond that. We didn't just survive. We didn't just survive. We thrived. Yeah, so we were doing more with such a tight scope, with such a with such tight budgets, and that's what I'm getting at. Yeah, the moment we've got more money, the moment we've got more money in the system, we haven't just sat back and gone, "Oh, well, hang on a bit."
1: But it's really like the worst off in society that have been hit by austerity measures. Um, you know, food banks are now at record high numbers. One point six million food banks across the UK in the past five years. hundred and sixty five percent jump in um, homeless people on our streets. Um, So how can you claim that they did everything they could and more with the limited scope that they had when corporation tax is still at 19%, it's one of the lowest in Europe, when there's consistent record of the Conservatives allowing tax avoidance, companies like Google and Starbucks having offshore accounts worth billions, how can you say that they've done what they can with a limited scope when they've allowed these big businesses to get away with things and allowed the, the worst off in society to take the biggest hit?
5: Yeah. Um, there's a lot in what you've said there, and allow me to, to come back on a few of the points you've mentioned. first of all you're right there is more that needs to be done in terms of Google and the big international companies don't get me wrong. It was George Osborne that introduced the Google tax so we can actually start tackling some of the issues you've mentioned and it 's not right and it's not perfect and more will be done. but you won't get there by just arbitrarily raising the the uh, level of corporation tax or the, uh, the basic rate of, uh, or the, the higher rate of income tax you won 't get there. So in terms of corporation tax, uh, Boris Johnson actually did a speech for the CBI. Um, I think it was either this week or just the, the, the uh, latter part of last week, where he had to apologise to the CBI and say, I, you know, I am reversing the promised uh, reduction in corporation tax because I'm taking that money and I'm investing it in the NHS. Um, and we've increased the, basic, the, 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 uh, the minimum wage level and we're increasing the national insurance contribution uh, rate. So that over 31 million people are lifted or receiving a tax break at the lower end of the scale. So we're not talking about the middle band, we're talking about working class people that are really at the lower band. So now people will get a tax break up to £12,500. That's a major lift for some people that are on very, very low incomes indeed.
1: But just to clarify, you wouldn't raise corporation tax if you were in power?
5: Well, as I said to you just a moment ago, Boris Johnson has turned around his head he is not going to introduce the, tax cut, the, the corporation tax cut that, he, that people were previously, um, previously intending to make because he's going to invest that money into the NHS.
1: Many have accused Boris Johnson of being racist, misogynistic and Islamic phobic for the comments he has made publicly. Now, the question really is, do you think... That he should apologise for saying these things? A simple solution that would have a huge psychological impact affected by the comments. Now I'm not saying that there wasn't context but I'm saying do you think he should apologise for these things which he has said? Just to clarify some of the things that Boris Johnson has said is in 2002 he described black people as pickaninnies with watermelon smiles, he's called gay people tank-tock bum boys and Um, He wrote that equal marriage is akin to bestiality. Um, He's compared Muslim women... um, But just to clarify... ...as last year to bank robbers um, that had letterboxes.
5: So, um, I think Boris Johnson has given an account of himself on each of these occasions, and um, where it's been appropriate for him to do so, he has apologised. But you you talk about needing to know things in wider context, yeah? Yeah. I don't agree with everything my leader said. Yeah, you know, I don't think any politician agrees with everything their political leaders or or, or colleagues say. You know, but on some of these things, particularly um, with the Islamophobic comments as they've been branded, Boris Johnson was trying to make a point about women's equality, and he was trying to promote women's equality, and I believe he was on the radio this week um, making that very same point. So you know. It's not for me to turn around and demand that he make apologies for past comments. He's done that. There are more powerful people than me that have, have called upon him to do so. Um, uh, and I think that's all I can really say on the matter.
1: But do you think that he should apologize for making those comments, which have offended a lot of people?
5: I think anybody that offends somebody should apologize. Um, if, if the uh, intention was to deliberately offend, um, if somebody has mistakenly offended somebody, it's always good to find out why you've offended somebody. And, and it's just a natural thing that one should do.
1: But as a leader of this country, obviously, the things he said have an impact on the psychology of the entire country. You know, some people would say that it normalizes this which sort of answer language. Would you,
5: what, what answer would you like me to give? Because I've given you my answer and you've asked me again. So which answer would you like me to give? And perhaps I could... Uh,
1: I just wanted to know whether or not you would like him to apologise. Out know, a direct and answer, I, yes or no. That's and what I, I would and like. I, and
5: I've turned around and said that if somebody has said something offensive, I think the general principle is that one should apologise, um, and, and that's where I, uh, I've given you my answer.
0: You talked about women's equality. Boris Johnson arguing that he was arguing for women's equality within the context of that column. Do you think when? Do you think that's something he's sincere with? There's been other comments in the past where um, I think it was at a forum and. He, the Malaysian kind of leader was saying that they actually had 68%, 68% or somewhere around that quite a high amount of women going to university and he turned around and said the women are going to university so they can marry and meet a man. Do you think those kind of comments when they add up actually give especially women the idea that Boris Johnson is someone who can lead our country effectively and actually does care about women's issues from a place of sincerity or do you think that's actually something that isn't quite true?
5: I think Boris Johnson is sincere in trying to create equal opportunities for everybody in this country. I see it in the announcements he makes on education, where he's increasing the amount of funding for every pupil uh, in this country. I see it when he's investing in special education needs uh, education. I see it when he's investing in youth offenders um, institutions, so he's trying to put the funding in so we rehabilitate prisoners in order that they don't re-offend. I see it in his investments in the NHS, in terms of the number of new hospitals that are being announced and the regeneration of existing hospitals. I see it when he's investing in research and development so he can broadcast and push out the expertise in British industry. I see it when he's increased you know, uh, whether he's diverted part of the overseas budget to try and look at marine wildlife, so that some of the poorest people in the world have the opportunity to live outside of absolute poverty. And he's, you know, and he's been a major champion on making sure that young girls in developing countries have access to a schooling. He's been a major champion on that. Um, So, yes, I believe that Boris Johnson believes in opportunity for all. Yes, I believe that he um, believes in education, not just of boys, but also of girls, because of the things, the actions actions he's taken, the actions he's taken, okay? And this manifesto, if you read it from cover to cover, there are actions being taken on the NHS, being taken on education, being taken on the environment, being taken on crime, being taken on uh, rehabilitation, Um, be whatever crime that be so we're not just uh, allowing people to fall by the wayside but we are actually trying to bring everybody in society together bring everybody back in
0: and in the last 30 seconds or so if you had to wrap up why people should vote for you why people should vote for the conservatives what would you say
5: conservative party um, is we are the party of opportunity you know we will provide you with the mechanisms, the means, so that you can uh, lead your life uh, how you want to, regardless of your race, your orientation, whoever you are, so long as you have the, you know, the talent to go as far as you want, yeah. And we will put those mechanisms in place to support and help you. Um, so that's why we're asking people to vote Conservative. We're investing in Cambridge in terms of the hospital. We're investing in education. We're investing in infrastructure. And I'm a really nice person. Perfect.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you, thank
5: you.
0: Thank you for listening, and thank you to all the candidates for taking part. Make sure to vote on December the twelfth, whether it's in person, by proxy, or by postal vote. If you want to keep up to date with future episodes that will be airing on Switchboard, follow us on either Spotify or Apple Podcasts, and we'll be back after the Christmas break. This has been Holly McCaskill for Switchboard.